Hi, I'm Natalie Pearson at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and today I'm joined by Jara Sastrawan, a PhD candidate in Asian Studies here at the University of Sydney. And Jara is also the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's postgraduate coordinator. Jara's research focuses on the historical writing practices of pre-modern Southeast Asia, specialising in texts written in Malay, Javanese and Balinese. He's also interested in the theory of history, the environmental and economic history of Southeast Asia, modern Indonesian history and Indonesian popular music. And I happen to know he's also a huge fan of K-pop. So Jara is a founding member of the research group Perspectives on the Past, and he's also an editor for New Mandala. Jara, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Natalie. I've been looking forward to coming on here. So Jara, your research looks at the practice of history in pre-modern Southeast Asia. And today I want to focus specifically on pre-modern Java. So that is sort of the 9th to the 15th centuries. Can you tell us what was happening in Java in this period and why is it important for us to understand how they were producing and using historical knowledge? The first point I want to make is that Java was one of the most important island cultures in world history. We often lose sight of the fact because Java now plays a relatively smaller role. But in the medieval period, in this 9th to 15th century, it was one of the most significant cultures in Southeast Asia. And it had similar sorts of social and cultural organization to Britain at the same period and to Japan of the same period. So these three islands of similar scale also had a similar level of civilization or social organization. More concretely, Java had, from the ninth century onwards, a highly organized and in some ways bureaucratized state system. This state operated largely in the agricultural heartlands of South Central Java, so the area around Jogjakarta and Solo today, and also in the Brantas River Valley of East Java. So around the areas of modern-day Surabaya, Kadiri, and Mojokerto. These parts of Java were highly fertile agricultural areas, and as a result, they contained large populations of agrarian workers and a highly complex and increasingly hierarchical political structure to organize the economic growth and population growth that was a feature of Javanese life from the 9th to the 15th century. So tell us about how they were creating historical knowledge and how they were actually using that, that knowledge. Historical knowledge, in my view, emerged in Java from the needs of the state. As the state grew and as the society that it had to manage grew with it, there was an increasing need for the state to record, to investigate, and to understand its own past, and specifically to produce and consult written documents to do this. So the earliest written documents that we have from Java are largely administrative. They're about the allocation of economic resources, the allocation of labor, negotiations and distribution between different villages, between aristocratic groups, between religious foundations, such as monasteries or temples. And the interaction of these social groups and their need to organize and administrate themselves and each other was, in my view, the primary impetus for the production of historical knowledge. The reason is that the legal system that developed in order to accommodate these needs and these negotiations was based on a sense of the continuity of legal rights. So once, for example, 
a particular piece of land had been allocated for the benefit of a religious foundation, such as a monastery, that monastery expected to maintain those rights forever. In order to do so, they needed proof that in the future could be consulted. So if they're given an allocation, they had to produce a record that in subsequent generations could be looked at again in order to prove that those rights had been granted. This, in my view, is the beginning of what we might call a historical consciousness and also a proto-historical method. That is, the need to think about the past as something which is investigable. So the idea that the past is something that we can know through looking at evidence such as written records. The idea that the past was continuous with the present. So, for example, that a decision made by a king 100 years ago is still valid today and that one can understand and know about these past events that are relevant to the present by means of the consultation of written documents, as well as, in some cases, informed oral testimony. But the primacy of written documents as a source of evidence comes out clearly in these early texts. How likely were they to be challenged on, uh, for example, their access to land? This is a really common occurrence and is one of the several reasons why records were produced in the first place. We have a number of records detailing when legal disputes arose, conflicts between two different families over the same piece of land. And it records in detail how those two conflicting parties went to a higher authority, often a magistrate or a group of magistrates, sometimes even the king, and requested an investigation to determine who actually owned the land who was originally given the rights. And those documents detail who won the case, who lost the case, and why. And very often we find that the reason that a particular party wins the case is because they're able to produce better historical records, better documentation to prove the particular claim that they're making about who had the land first. Okay, so what constituted a better record? How was that assessed or judged? In general, Official written documents were given primacy when these sorts of decisions were being made. It's very common for a party in a legal dispute to talk about being able to produce a charter that is an official government document stating that they have rights. They often state the age of the records or when it was first issued in order to show that that record is in fact older or prior to other people's claims. And they often mention the name of the authority, usually the king but sometimes a lower ranking official who made that record and under whose authority and under whose power that decision was made. So it's about appealing not only to the document in and of itself, but also the age of the document and also the official position of the person under whose authority it was issued. So this historical knowledge was transmitted in a number of ways, both through the textual practice of manuscript copying and also by oral recitation of handwritten texts. What do we know about these different modes of transmission? What we know is quite limited. The reason for that is that only a very small amount of written material remains. The sorts of practices I was just describing are only really known from a handful of sources written on durable materials, such as stone and copper plate. We know that the majority of written texts were produced on organic materials probably palm leaves, but also perhaps other kinds of organic materials such as bark paper, bamboo, or wood, and that almost all of these original documents have now perished. 
they're physically no longer in existence. But we can tell that they once existed because we can infer from other records, those written on stone and copper, that the information contained in them was once written on these organic materials. This is a manner in which Java is very different to many other historical fields or places where we can do history, because due to the climate and a number of other factors, documents on organic materials perish very, very fast. We don't have medieval manuscripts, that is, physical objects from the medieval period, in the same way that we have them in Western Europe or in China. We don't have documents from the ancient period in the way that we do in parts of the Middle East. Physically, they don't exist anymore. Sorry to interrupt, but some did exist. Some did survive, right? So some of the metal inscriptions, for example, survived. But even these weren't completely safe, were they? That's right. In terms of organic material, it's almost all gone. In terms of the material written on more durable supports, such as metal or stone, some of these have survived. But indeed, not always. We have mentioned in a copper plate inscription and a metal inscription that specifically says this inscription has had to be reissued because there was an earthquake and the original was destroyed. So even documents that had been produced specifically on expensive, durable materials like metal were vulnerable to destruction. How much more vulnerable were texts written on organic materials, ones that were cheaper to produce and therefore probably constituted the bulk of documentation and record keeping that was produced in Java? Well, now might be a good point to just ask you about your methodology and what sources you're using. You've sort of briefly touched on the process of your research here in terms of uh, learning languages and, and scripts, but how are you using primary and secondary sources in your research? I'm interested in how the Javanese did history. So I'm interested in studying the historical practices that existed in Java in this pre-modern period. And so what I take as my primary sources includes not only inscriptions, but also later texts written in manuscript form, because those texts are the product of Javanese historians' work. Javanese in the 14th century drew on earlier sources and compiled new historical records. And so I look at those historical records and try to understand what were they doing and how were they doing it. It means that I'm drawing on a number of different types of source. As I mentioned, I draw a lot on inscriptions, that is text written generally on durable materials and often of an administrative nature. I also draw on texts that are passed down in the manuscript tradition, that is texts which are handwritten on more perishable materials such as palm leaf. Often these texts, because they don't last very long in the tropical climate, had to be recopied every few decades or every hundred years or so which means that the physical objects that I deal with are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies going back a long time. But the physical object may only be from the 19th century or even from the 20th century. But nevertheless, the texts that they contain may have had a much older history and may go back even to the 14th century. I read those texts in order to understand what people were doing and how they were writing all the way back at that time. These manuscripts in particular are stored in a variety of locations in Indonesia, so the National Library of Indonesia in particular, but also the palm leaf library in Bali called the Kirtia, as well as a number of university libraries, such as the Menzies Library at ANU, the Leiden University Library in the Netherlands, and I also occasionally make use of the resources from the British Library. These collections are all over the world. 
a great very many of them only exist in manuscript form and you have to physically go in person to inspect them and to read them. That's changing slowly. There is a strong movement within the study of Southeast Asian manuscripts in particular to move towards digitizing these texts on a large scale. The British Library has been very advanced in this respect and other libraries such as Leiden are following suit, also the National Library of Indonesia. And there's also a more community-based project, but also a very wide-ranging one called DreamSea, which is aimed at the digital preservation of Southeast Asian manuscript cultures. I think having access to these documents online is uh, incredibly valuable uh, at any point in time, as you say, for scholars spread out all over the world, but particularly at the moment where we're all socially isolating and travel, uh, fieldwork, research is so restricted. Should we assume that these inscriptions that do survive, whether they're on metal or stone or some of the very fragile materials that perhaps have survived through the centuries, are all in Roman script in uh, Indonesian language? How are we able to understand these languages and these scripts from the past? Is it very straightforward or is specialist knowledge required in order to be able to read these inscriptions? These texts, the ones that I'm looking at, which date from the 9th century or slightly earlier through to the 15th century, and which are from the Javanese-speaking areas, all of these, or almost all of these, are written in a language called Old Javanese. The Indonesian word for this that's often used is Kawi. This is a variety of the Javanese language that's spoken today, but it is quite archaic. It perhaps reflects the speech of a thousand years ago or maybe more. And it's also a highly formalized and standardized register of that language. So it's very much an official literary and administrative language rather than the language of every day. It's not easily intelligible to Javanese speakers today and it's not at all really intelligible to Indonesian speakers of today. So we are dealing with a separate language that requires some study to get a hold of. And the same is true of the script in which these texts are written. They are originally written in the script of ancient Java, of medieval Java. And over time, as the manuscripts were copied over and over again, the scripts changed and evolved into what we recognize today as modern Balinese script, for example since many of these texts were passed to Bali and preserved there, and also modern Javanese script, which is very, very similar. In recent years, particularly since the 20th century, there have been a number of these texts that have been transliterated into Roman script, and a smaller number which have been translated into modern languages. The script itself is not very challenging. It just requires a little bit of study and a little bit of practice. But I would also say that the ability to read the sources in the original language and to make sense of them rather than having to rely on other people's translations is a really important gift and tool if you're interested in the study of history. So I'd like to come back to what you call this idea of textuality in the tropics, which we were sort of talking about earlier in terms of the precarious and very contingent nature of these um, materials that were used for writing. So what was the impact of these material conditions on the textual transmission of knowledge? My view is that the physical perishability of written records plays a really strong constraining role on historical practice. And the reason is that it meant that historical records would disappear by default after some period of time, so that they could not be expected to survive on their own for very long periods. 
I'm talking specifically about records on organic materials, which forms the majority of records that were ever produced. And that meant that in order for these records to be maintained, they had to be repeatedly copied. There had to be an investment of time and effort and will to keep these archival documents from perishing. These records therefore became very vulnerable to changes of circumstance. And in particular, when institutions were replaced or displaced, by and large, their records disappeared as well. So for example, we have no records on organic materials of any Javanese royal court before 1600. That is, no political center in Java has had their records survive until 1600. And this is a very different situation from other parts of the world, particularly other parts of the temperate world. Records generally disappeared and the information they contained could no longer be recovered. The second consequence is that text could not circulate widely because the effort required to maintain copies and to preserve copies was great. And so texts which were not of broad interest or which seemed to be of only local interest tended simply to die out without being transmitted or circulated more widely. The oldest texts that we do have from Java tend to be narrative texts or religious texts of a general nature. So we can see this process where texts such as the Ramayana poem or stories from the Mahabharata, very prestigious texts with a broad appeal, these tended to be copied over and over in many, many places and circulated widely and therefore have survived. Texts that were more localized about the story of a particular dynasty, the history of a particular location or foundation or institution, very few of these have survived precisely because their circulation seems to have been much more limited. So you have these two effects of the perishability of written documents on organic materials. One, they're restricted in time because they disappear a lot. And two, they're restricted in space because it's difficult for them to circulate when only so few copies are in existence. What this meant, and this is a really important point, is that Javanese historians in the pre-modern period had difficulty accessing a wide range of sources. They tended to only have access to a small number of sources that gave a partial picture of the things that had happened. But nevertheless, they still had to use them. They still had to come up with a coherent historical narrative based on a limited source base. And this is where other forms of historical knowledge, such as the oral transmission of historical narratives, the use of physical memorials, helped historians to try to build coherence out of what in many cases was a very fragmentary written documentary record. And this led, particularly from the 16th century onwards in Java, to a proliferation of divergent historical accounts. So we look at the later Javanese historical writings, those from the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th centuries, and we find that they're highly conflicted on the issue of the pre-Islamic past. So the story of Majapahit, for example, the 14th century kingdom, is told very, very differently in a whole range of more modern Javanese sources. And it's difficult to see how those sources can be reconciled. When these differences of opinion and divergent versions of event occurred, they could not be adjudicated. The original documents had disappeared, they'd been destroyed. So there was nothing that they, people could go back to to verify one account and falsify another. So I understand that this led to uh, a perception amongst uh, so-called real historians that Javanese accounts of the past were theoretically inadequate. But one of the main arguments of your research is that history was practiced in pre-modern Java. 
So why does this point even need to be made? What is this tension with real historians versus how history is, is told and used in Java? And what does this tell us about how we value history? What the study of Javanese practice shows is that people did history differently depending on their circumstances. And what I want to emphasize is that it's the material conditions of doing history in Java that were really decisive. And therefore, we need to come up with a, a theory of history or a concept of history that is able to accommodate and explain that difference. We need to have a theory of history that is able to account for the variety of ways in which history was actually practiced in different parts of the world and not just one that's good for accounting for the history of Western history writing or European history writing. There's a popular trend among historians at the present time to write what are called global histories, which are histories on world scales, but ones which emphasize connection and the equality of the different societies of the world. So one that specifically rejects Eurocentrism and other kinds of ethnocentrism in the telling of the story of the world. And my view is that I think that this is a really good paradigm. It's one that's appropriate for the current age, but that in participating in global history, we need not only to globalize the subject matter, it's not enough just to write about a particular historical phenomenon and making sure that we include examples from Africa and from America and from Southeast Asia. We also need to globalize our approach and our methodology. So we need to think critically about why it is that we do history our way and why it is that the Javanese, for example, did history a different way or in different circumstances. The positioning of my overall argument, I'm making some specific claims about what happened in Java between the 9th and the 15th century, why they did things that way, what the circumstances were. But the much bigger picture into which that fits in a very small way is to think about how the experiences of people outside the European experience or the modern experience, which are two different but importantly related things, how their practices might contribute to a broader theory about what history is. I think that is an incredibly exciting point at which to finish our podcast today. You're asking some really provocative and important questions, I think, for not only scholars of pre-modern Java, but for global historians. It's really wonderful that you are able to share some elements of your research through the SEAC podcast forum, and we look forward to seeing the results of your thesis when it's in. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to share some of this work. I've really appreciated it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.